Welcome to Podcast 42, the podcast that talks about life, the universe, and everything. Welcome back. Well, on the previous episode, I spoke about the Muppets and also my latest trip across the pond. So I thought I'd share one of my theme park experiences again, and also a bit about a certain museum I visited while I was in Atlanta, definitely Muppet-themed. Plus, in this episode, the long-awaited Random Town section. Yes, I chose a random town some time ago, and this episode, I'm going to talk about it finally. So a bit of a mixed bag this time. We've got three subjects to talk about, theme park, a museum, and a random town. And I'm sure there'll be a few dad jokes and stupid quotes thrown in for good measure. But first, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and also the YouTube channel, Crisket. Now it's improved, I have a keyboard, oh dear. The relentless road to 200 subscribers continues. So thanks for listening so far, and your feedback is also appreciated. Any requests or show ideas to podcast42 at gmail.com. That's podcast42, all letters, no numbers. P-O-D-C-A-S-T-F-O-R-T-Y-T-W-O at gmail.com. I've had some good feedback through that, actually, and definitely some ideas for future episodes. So where to start? Let's start at a theme park. So during my recent trip to the US, I was fortunate to go to Six Flags Over Georgia theme park. I actually went there a couple of times. How about a quick bit of history of the park, and also a bit of my view on all of the rides I tried, and some of the more terrifying ones that I didn't try. Get out of the rush, come on, take a break. A ski to a place where the fun never fades. can't beat a good 1990 commercial, full of cheesiness and all the good things in life. Okay, Six Flags Over Georgia. It's a 290 acre, that's a 1.2 square kilometre theme park, located in the unincorporated Cobb County of Austell, Georgia, United States. It opened in 1967, and it's the second park in the Six Flags chain, following the original Six Flags Over Texas, which opened in 1961. Now, Six Flags Over Georgia is one of three parks in the Six Flags chain to have been founded by Angus G. Wynne. The G stands for Gilchrist, in case you were wondering. I did research it, as per usual. As with the other Six Flags parks, it features themes from the Warner Brothers Entertainment Library, including characters from Looney Tunes and DC Comics. Some of my favourites. Definitely a Looney Tunes episode coming real soon, I think. After the success of the original Six Flags Park in Arlington, Texas, park founder Angus Wynn began searching for a location for a second park, looking mainly in the southeastern United States, with initial design work on the park starting in 1964. In August of 65, the Wall Street Journal reported that Wynn's development company, Great Southwest Corporation, had purchased 3,000 acres, that's 1,200 hectares, of land along the Chattahoochee River. Ah, the Chattahoochee River. I have many good memories of that. I had the pleasure of tubing down that one one summer afternoon. Very pleasant. Cheap beer as well. 
Top tip kids, go to Helen, get cheap beer. After your tubing though, not allowed while you're tubing, oh dear. And the land outside of Atlanta was for a planned $400 million industrial park with an adjacent $7 million amusement park. The land actually chosen though, was the site of the oldest permanent agricultural village in Georgia, home to the Muscogee Creek farmers from 200 BC to 500 AD. The popular explanation of the meaning of Chattahoochee is that it is a Muscogee Creek word meaning river with the shining rocks. But this is probably not accurate apparently. Until the late 1700s, there was a large creek town with several mounds where Six Flags Over Georgia is now located. In the Ansati, that's the Hechiti Creek language, it was named Catahochi, which means Red River. The river at this town site is often clear red and contains no visible stones. When most of the creeks were forcibly deported to the Indian Territory in Oklahoma, they called the principal river that ran through their lands the Red River. And unfortunately, during development of the Six Flags Park though, the ceremonial mounds were sadly destroyed without being studied. But Angus Wynn hired former Hollywood art directors Randall Jewell and Hans Peters to develop the park, then named simply Georgia Flags. Like its sister park in Texas, the design and theming of Six Flags Over Georgia was inspired by six different flags that have flown over the state, or perhaps more accurately, the lands that are now part of it during its history. The two states shared the connections to Spain, France, Confederate States of America, and the US. For Georgia, Great Britain would replace Mexico, and the flag of the state of Georgia would replace that of Texas, even though Georgia was never a sovereign nation as Texas once was. Enough history though, when the park opened in 1967, Six Flags became the first multi-gate theme park operator in the United States. So let's start with the park history. Let's start in the 1960s. It's a very good place to start. Six Flags Over Georgia opened to the public on June the 16th, 1967. Attractions first available included the Long Jamboree Log Flume Ride, Jean Ribot's Adventure, a boat tour similar to the Jungle Cruise at Disney World, the Six Flags Railroad, two driving attractions, the Happy Motoring Freeway and the Hanson Cars, two satellite flat rides, the Tales of the Okefenokee Dark Ride, more about that soon, the Casa Loco Tilt House, the Skylift Astrolift Cable Car and the park's first roller coaster, the Dahlonega Mine Train. The park also offered live entertainment, including a dolphin show, the Croft Puppet Theatre, and the Athenaeum, later renamed the Crystal Pistol. Easy for you to say. After a successful first season, plans were set in motion to expand the park, and adjustments were made to existing attractions based on visitor feedback. A second log jamboree flume was added, a new show debuted in the Croft Puppet Theatre, and the effects inside the tales of the Okafenoki were upgraded with the help of Croft Studios. Okafenoki, I hope I'm saying that right because it's a great word. The park relocated Casa Loco out of its Spanish fort to make way for the Horror Cave Haunted House attraction. A new adjacent building was built for Casa Loco's effects, which would become Casa Magnetica. Oh, even more good words. Casa Magnetica, that's great. However, the largest improvement was the addition of the park's first new section, Lick Skillet. Yes, it was called Lick Skillet. Located outside the park's railroad tracks, and named after the Georgia mining town in the late 19th century, Lick Skillet. And this area added three new rides. The Spindle Top, a rotor flat ride, the Wheelborough, a chance tumbler, and the Sky Buckets, the park's second cable car ride. In this area were several craft shops and a shootout show performed on the street. In 1969, Six Flags added still more attractions. The Sky Hook Observation Tower, which was actually relocated from Six Flags over Texas, the Mini Mine Train, the park's second roller coaster, and the Chevy Show, which was a domed theatre building. Okay, how about the 70s?
In the early 70s, Six Flags began augmenting its supply of costume characters with creations from various Sid and Marty Croft television series. Characters from HR Puffin Stuff began appearing in the park in 1970, with characters from Lidsville added in 1972. The 1970 production in the Croft Puppet Theatre was based on HR Puffin Stuff as well. These characters left the park after the 1974 season as Croft decided to open its own amusement park, the world of Sid and Marty Croft in downtown Atlanta. In Lickskillet, the Drunken Barrels flat ride had replaced the Wheelboro, and in 1972, Six Flags debuted the fully restored Riverview Carousel on a hilltop adjacent to this section. The carousel, purchased from the defunct Riverview Park in Chicago, was built in a pavilion modelled after its original home. For the 1973 season, Six Flags added its second park expansion, the Cotton States Exposition, a development four years in the making. In 1969, General Manager Earl McCoy first proposed that the park install a wooden roller coaster, an idea to which Angus Wynne wasn't very receptive. By 1971, however, the concept was approved and designer John C. Allen and the Philadelphia Toboggan Company were contracted to design the ride. And it opened in 1973 as the Great American Scream Machine. We definitely want to talk about that later. But the Scream Machine, the largest roller coaster in the world at the time, was the anchor attraction for the Cotton States area, which was inspired by the 1895 Cotton States and International Exposition. In 1974, Six Flags added two new rides, the Momo the Monster Octopus ride, that was in the USA section, and the Flying Falerpus spinning ride in Cotton States. Momo would later relocate to the Cotton States as well. The Spanish section received a number of children's rides for the 1975 season. After the end of the season, the Happy Motoring Freeway was removed to make way for the Great Gasp Parachute Drop, which would be the park's new attraction for 1976. In 77, they added Wheelie from Schwarzkopf Enterprise. In 1978, the Mindbender was added. In 1979, there's the Highland Swings, a chance for your ride. So that's some of the early development from the 60s and 70s. How about we skip forward? Let's get to the present day. Otherwise, we'd be talking about this history all day long. Now, in late 2010, Six Flags began the process of removing licensed theming from attractions. They terminated several licenses, including their license with Thomas the Tank Engine. Thomastown was renamed and rethemed to Whistle Stop Park for the 2011 season. In an arrangement similar to that for Six Flags over Texas, it is owned by a group of approximately 120 limited partners. Some of the heirs of Angus G. Wynn, and it's managed by the corporation. In years past, this has caused significant friction, starting in 1991 when the park was managed by Time Warner Entertainment. The partners sued Time Warner in 1997, claiming they had neglected to invest in the park and overcharged the partners for the improvements it did receive. A Gwinnett County Civil Court jury agreed and awarded the partners damages in excess of 600 million US dollars. In 1998, Time Warner sold its interests in the Six Flags Pugs to Premier Parks of Oklahoma City, which later changed its names to Six Flags Theme Parks Incorporated. That's kind of why I skipped the 80s and 90s, because the parks were neglected somewhat. Fast forward to August the 29th, 2013, Six Flags officially announced it would add a Hurricane Harbor water park next door to the park for the 2014 season. In late April 2014, the park announced that it would expand their season from October to January to include the new Christmas event, Holiday in the Park, and that will be for years to come. As part of Six Flags' 2015 capital investment program, Six Flags Over Georgia received two rides in its Gotham City section, the first, the Joker Chaos Coaster. It's a Larson giant loop ride, approximately 70 feet in height. While the second, Harley Quinn Spin Sanity, is a more traditional tilt-a-whirl family ride. Both attractions are part of the broader renovation of the Gotham City area, which also included a new character meet and greet area and improvements to the existing Gotham City eatery restaurant. In 2016, Six Flags added two new children's areas to the park, 
Bugs Bunny Boomtown and DC Super Friends, the first in the Six Flags chain. On June the 16th, 2016, it was announced that Dodge City bumper cars would be closed and removed from the park to make room for a new ride in 2017. On September the 1st, 2016, the park announced that an all-new dark ride named Justice League Battle for Metropolis would replace Dodge City bumper cars. Sounds much better. Anyway, talking of the rides, how about I get on with that? That's a little bit of a potted history of Six Flags Over Georgia. As I said, the 90s were quite bleak for them, even though the adverts were quite cheesy, but when it came into the 2000s, the park really came into its own. Okay, let's talk about the attractions. I will only talk mostly about the rides I actually experienced, which is pretty much all of them, with the odd exception due to circumstance or sheer terror at the sight of them. I'll try and keep this in order of walking around the park too, as I did have expert guides to show me around. It was actually strange and a welcome change for me to visit a theme park that I knew nothing about until I arrived. I know all the Disney parks inside out all over the world, and this was a welcome change. Okay, first up, and this was my guide's personal favourite, Goliath. Goliath by name and Goliath by nature. This 2006 hypercoaster, manufactured by Bollinger and Mabillard, and in fact one of the first hypercoasters in the southeastern United States, and truly a sight to behold. And I was doing this after a 15 hour flight the previous day, so I wasn't quite sure how riding this behemoth was going to pan out. It opened on April the 1st, 2006, and it ranked as the fourth best new ride of 2006 in the annual Golden Ticket Awards publication for Amusement Today, and the ninth best steel roller coaster overall, with its peak ranking of fourth occurring in 2009 and 2011. What's a hypercoaster, you ask? A hypercoaster is a complete circuit roller coaster with a height measuring at least 200 feet, 61 meters for those of you still in Europe. The term was first coined by Aerodynamics and Cedar Point in 1989 with the release of the world's first hypercoaster, the Magnum XL200. It was followed by Pepsi Max Big One five years later, that's in Blackpool in the United Kingdom, I've actually ridden that. It's really tall, it's very high, in fact it's 213 feet, 65 meters, that is some drop trust me. Other roller coaster manufacturers developed models with custom names including mega coasters from Intamin, hypercoasters as I said from Bollinger and Mabillard, and hyper hybrid coasters from Rocky Mountain Construction. The competition between amusement parks to build increasingly taller roller coasters eventually led to the Giga coasters. These are ones which exceed 300 feet, 91 meters, and Strata coasters which exceed 400 feet, 120 meters. Now I love roller coasters, the bigger the better, the faster, the more excitement, and the size of Goliath really didn't faze me at all, to begin with. I also noticed that it didn't appear to have any loops, corkscrews, and general upside down sections of the coaster. Hey, no dramas. That was until I got strapped into the front seat on my first ride, with what can only be described as minimal containment. A simple waist restraint with handles, the handles which actually proved invaluable for the next few minutes. As you rise on the initial lift, you realise how open the train really is, and that you rise and rise and rise a bit more, until the whole of the Atlanta area is clearly visible. A stunning view, but on the front row, and presented with the first 52 metre, 170 foot drop, I wasn't thinking about sightseeing. The steel track of Goliath is approximately 4,480 feet long, and covers an area of about 8.5 acres. It actually extends outside of the park, it's that big. 
As I said, the height of this lift, initial lift, is 200 feet, 61 meters. The roller coaster has no inversions, but does feature six camelback hills and a 540 degree helix. The track is painted orange, while the supports are painted teal. Actually, Goliath's steelwork, believe it or not, was manufactured by the Claremont Steel Fabricators in Batavia, Ohio. So, hello, Ohio, to our one listener in Batavia. Goliath operates two steel and fiberglass trains. Each train has nine cars, which can seat four riders in a single row, for a total of 36 riders per train. And as I said, each seat has its own individual lap bar restraint. It's not big, it's not a lot of restraint. But this configuration allows the ride to achieve a theoretical hourly capacity of 1220 riders per hour. That's a lot. But I can honestly say, on my first ride on the front row, from the first lift onwards, I screamed like a little girl over each of the six camelback hills and the amount of airtime you get seems to last forever and you genuinely feel as though you are about to fall out of the restraint. This is obviously not about to happen, but the terror seems real. I was shaken and very stirred by the time we pulled back into the loading station after the first time and also, as I said, on the front row which I vowed never again would I partake in such nonsense. This however faded into insignificance on my return to the park, as I was determined to conquer this Goliath. And conquer it I did. After riding the brand new Velocicoaster at Universal Studios Islands of Adventure the previous week, actually more about that at the end of this episode I think, well I was ready to meet the challenge of Goliath. And I'm so pleased I gave Goliath a second try, as it instantly became one of my favourite coasters in the whole world. The terror replaced with the delightful view, the smooth ride, and knowing that the Camelbacks and 540 degree Helix were actually a really enjoyable part of the ride. After I'd been on it for the first time, I didn't even remember the handles. On the restraint, I was assuming there was no handles, but they were handy to hold on to. But on the second time, I did leave go of the handles a little bit and thoroughly enjoyed the ride. It's a long ride, it's a smooth ride, the airtime is amazing. I should give all of these rides and attractions a score out of 10. So how about let's kick this off with an exhilarating 7 out of 10 for my first ride, but replaced by a superb, brilliant 9.5 out of 10 for my second attempt. I would recommend this coaster to anyone who loves a good, fast thrill ride, but prefers the smoother ride. We'll come to the not so smooth rides later, I'm sure. Okay, what's next up? I've always loved Superman in all of his iterations. From the Christopher Reeve days all the way to modern day, I will always love watching Superman shows. Actually, the new Lois and Superman that's currently just finished part one of its first season is actually very good. Check it out. Worth a look. Anyway, I've always loved Superman. I've always loved coasters. But I've always loved coasters where you practically lay down on your front and fly through the air. And this did not disappoint. 
opening in 2002, and another B&M coaster. This is one hell of a ride. And the first ride actually confused me as to which way we were actually travelling around the loops and twists and drops. The next time I rode it, I was much more in tune with this alternate viewpoint, and it genuinely did make me feel as though I was flying at speed through the steel structure, tunnels and various surrounds. Now once you arrive in the loading station, riders of Superman Ultimate Flight board the train sitting down, in a similar style to inverted roller coasters. Riders are then restrained through a padded over-the-shoulder harness and a lap bar. At the ankles, two flaps hold the legs into position and close as the harness is locked into place. After the train is fully locked and checked, the trains are raised into the flying position, and then they depart the station. Superman Ultimate Flight begins as the train turns to the right and begins to climb the 160-foot tall chain lift hill. After cresting the top of the hill, the train then drops 100 feet to the right at a 50-degree angle, reaching a top speed of 51 miles per hour and preparing to enter the pretzel loop. In a pretzel loop, a train swoops up to the height of 78 feet before diving down towards the ground, looping back under the starting point. At the bottom of the loop, riders face upward and experience strong, positive g-forces. This was the part that really confused me. Which way were we going around the loop? It was very difficult to tell, but completely exhilarating ride. To complete the pretzel loop, the train climbs back to the top of the element, parallel to where it started. After exiting the element, the train then enters a 270 degree turn to the left, dropping back through the middle of the pretzel loop. This is quite a compact ride, but there's a lot of thrills in such a small area. Next, the train passes through two consecutive horseshoe turns, first to the right, then to the left. As the name suggests, horseshoe turns are highly banked horseshoe shaped turns, which feature track entering from roughly the same direction as where it exits. As the train exits the second horseshoe, it swoops down and begins a 270 degree helix to the right, which leads into the ride's second inversion, an inline twist. The inline twist sees riders perform a full rotation around the track, starting from a position where they are facing downwards. After completing the twist, the train reaches the brake run, and a final right hand turn leads them back into the station. A really great ride. Score out of 10 for me, definitely at least an 8 for me and another ride I would do again in a heartbeat. In fact, I did this a couple of times. The restraint system was one of my favourites. It made you feel very secure. Although I did see many potential riders turn back once they got close to the loading station and they saw what was ahead of them. The Superman theme is obviously ideally suited for the flying concept and does add a nice touch. From its comfortable restraint, silky ride and delightful pacing to its avian aesthetics, Superman demonstrates B&M's unmatched attention to detail and their genuine desire to create enjoyable rides that surprise us over and over again. The flying position definitely transforms the ride experience into something relatively different from the rest for sure. Okay, let's move on. Keeping the DC theme, let's head to Gotham City next, shall we? Batman the Ride is an inverted roller coaster based on the DC Comics character Batman, the one and only, another character I've always loved all iterations of. I did love the Adam West version from the 60s. I grew up watching reruns of that in the 70s. It's another coaster built by consulting engineers B&M, Bolliger and Mabillard in case you forgot, and opened in Georgia in 1997. It rises to a height of between 100 and 105 feet and reaches top speeds of 50 miles per hour. The original roller coaster at Six Flags Great America was partially devised by the park's general manager, Jim Wintrode, 
Batman the Ride was the world's first inverted roller coaster when the original opened at the Six Flags Great America in 1992 and has been awarded coaster landmark status by the American coaster enthusiasts. Clones of the ride, like the one in Georgia, exist at amusement parks around the world. As I said, the structure reaches 105 feet, the track length is 2,700 feet, but along with the top speed of 50 miles per hour, it exerts up to four times the force of gravity. There are five inversions, which are two vertical loops, a zero-g roll, and two corkscrews. If you're going to black out, this is the ride you'll do it on. The ride operates with two steel and fiberglass trains, each containing eight cars. Each car seats four riders in a single row for a total of 32 riders per train. The ride's original layout was specifically designed to fit in the Yankee Harbour themed area at Six Flags Great America, on the space previously occupied by the tidal wave, and the layout for each successive attraction is either identical or a mirror image of the original. As I said, these are all clones from the original. It's another very compact ride which fits a lot of action into a small footprint. While some later Batman the Ride clones are opened with dark blue tracks and supports, the originals were all black. Over the years, there have been modifications to the colour schemes, with more incorporating yellows, blues and purples. The original ride at Six Flags Great America retained the original black colour scheme until 2004, when the track was painted yellow and supports dark purple. But who cares what colour the supports are? Let's talk about the ride. Batman the Ride begins with the track floor in the station descending. The train moves out of the station and up a chain lift hill. At the top of the hill, the train dips down through a Bollinger and Mabillard pre-drop, goes down a 190 degree swoop to the left, and drops into the first vertical loop. It then flips through a Heartline spin, a zero-g roll, followed by another vertical loop. The train then travels upward around a tight spiral to the left, then through a wider turn to the right, drops slightly, and quickly turns through the first corkscrew, referred to as a flat spin by the manufacturer. Following this is a tight, right turn and another flat spin, then a tight left turnaround before the train enters the final brake run. Now that's an awful lot to fit into a small area, and as I say you've pulled some serious G's on this. It's quite a rough ride. Actually on a safety note, I read this incident report when researching this ride. On a sadder note I guess. On June the 28th 2008, a 17 year old South Carolina teenager was decapitated after being struck by the Batman roller coaster at Six Flags Over Georgia. The teen who was on a trip to the park with his church's youth group scaled two fences with a fence into a restricted area and walked into the ride's path. Although witnesses stated he was trying to retrieve his hat, a Cobb County police spokesman reported the teams were attempting to take a shortcut into the park. Oh dear, don't go after your hat, don't take shortcuts, you will lose your head. On a brighter note, how about the scores out of 10? For me, a solid 7. It simulates the Batman falls and twists and turns, which keep it faithful to its intended theme. Almost like Batman when he drops down from a building, ducking and diving and weaving through various parts of buildings and into dark alleys. It's a rather short, but effective ride, it's very fast. As I said, don't ride this if you are prone to blacking out during sharp twists when pulling those high Gs. Batman is such a gritty and intense ride, and it's based on quick variations in the layout. Compared with Superman, which is graceful and slower paced, and based on creating a singular flight sensation, which sums up the two DC characters incredibly well, in a steelwork representation of Bill Finger's Batman, and Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's Superman. Schuster's Superman is actually very difficult to say, and that took about 22 takes just there. Schuster's Superman, oh yes, <laughs> oh yes, we've got our bond again. Anyway, Six Flags isn't just about the thrill rides though. There are plenty of attractions for the younger and older visitor, I do like the Tamer rides sometimes. 
I don't want to go into too much detail of those, as I was primarily there for the thrill rides, but some of the other attractions included, as I mentioned earlier, Dahlonega Mine Train, Goldtown Racer Go-Karts, the Hansen Cars, the Log Jamboree, the Looney Tunes area, Marthasville Railroad Station, the Rabin Gap Railroad Station, the Riverview Carousel, Rockin' Tug, the Speedy Gonzales Speedboats, the Batcopters, the Joker Funhouse Coaster, Thunder River, Tweety Twee House, easy for you to say again, the Wonder Woman Flight School, and Yosemite Sam Wacky Wagons. But there is one in particular I'm going to focus on. As I said, this was primarily a trip to cram in all the thrill rides and coasters. But I'm also a sucker for the weird and the wacky. My appetite for such nonsense was well satiated on the next attraction. Apologies for that, but if you've ridden the Monster Mansion, you'll understand exactly what that big horn is all about. Anyway, formerly Monster Plantation, and originally the tales of the Okafenoki. Yes, I mentioned that earlier, still pronouncing it wrong probably, but it's a mill shoot ride at Six Flags over Georgia. Aboard six passenger boats, riders pass through nine scenes, very strange scenes, along the 700 foot long flume, passing by over 107 original, weird and wonderful, and just downright strange, animatronic characters. From the park's opening in 1967 until 1980, the building that currently houses Monster Mansion was, as I said, home to one of the park's original attractions. The boat mill shoot type ride, Tales of the Okefenokee, the old plantation legends with theming inspired by the Uncle Remus stories by Joel Chandler Harris. Six Flags owner Angus G. Wynn was reportedly unsatisfied with the animated figures in the 1967 season, saying they were too small and looked like window displays. So for 1968, the original Tales of the Okefenoki, that's a great word, I'm going to continue saying Okefenoki all day. But the attraction was redesigned by puppeteers Sid and Marty Croft, whom as I said earlier, Six Flags had worked with over the previous puppet shows. Most of the original sets from the previous iteration of the ride remained the same, with the Crofts' focus being more on the animated figures, sound and music. The attraction took inspiration from Walt Disney's 1946 movie, controversially, The Song of the South. Sadly, Splash Mountain in Disney World in the Magic Kingdom is soon to be rethemed from Song of the South to The Princess and the Frog. I don't mind that, but I will miss the original Splash Mountain. Maybe we'll have to have a memorial day for that. Or maybe a Splash Mountain memorial episode. Anyway, get back to Six Flags, shall we? As I said, based on Song of the South and the Little Golden Books, with several elements mixed from the creations of Jay Ward, Hanna-Barbera and Rankin Bass Productions. Voices for the 1968 version of the ride were provided by Lenny Weinrib, Joan Gerber and Marty Croft, who were also working on the Crofts television series HR Puffin Stuff at the time. I keep mentioning Puffin Stuff. Very vague to me, Puffin Stuff. I, I have seen clips of that, but that wasn't in the UK, unfortunately. Okay, let's have the ride summary. 
Now very little is known about the 1967 version of the ride. I could find a few bits of information, for example, after taking a seat inside of a fiberglass boat themed after an Indian craft made of animal skins, the boat moves on. Ahead, an entrance to the ride has two cutouts of anthropomorphic rabbits holding signs that read, keep hands inside the boat, and do not feed the bunnies. Going into the entrance, guests are surrounded by a large, colourful environment of various artificial plants, including bushes and large trees with Spanish moss hanging from the branches, and rounding the first bend, guests would see the first sign of activity, with owls blinking and hooting in the branches above them, and a quartet of crows, which is very difficult to say, sing a song in perfect harmony, welcoming their new neighbour. After receiving their welcome, guests float past the Okafenoki Swamp's fishing hole, located in the ruins of an old Civil War-era plantation home. Mr Rabbit, Mr Fox and Mr Bear are all busy fishing with hooks and bait, while a bullfrog is working on his suntan and a raccoon fumbles with his picnic basket. In one corner of the scene, a turtle rocked himself to sleep on the back of his shell, as if it were a cradle while snoring. Oh, that went all sedate there. He was rocking himself gently back and forward. And if you're listening to this while you're going to sleep, just close your eyes now. Wake up! No! <laughs> anyway, let's move on with the ride. The boat then entered a cave and guests are unable to see what lies ahead, except for a green giant snake peering down at them. The boat would round another bend, and suddenly the vista opens up. The critters of the Okafenoki have formed a Dixie Band, led by Mr Rabbit, who is wielding a crude baton. A pink female rabbit is behind him, clanging pot lids together as if they were hand symbols, while a chubby brown boy rabbit wearing a beanie plays a washboard. Also, a raccoon beats an inverted pot like a drum, while the third rabbit behind him somehow manages to play a toilet plunger like a trumpet. Sorry, that was my best impression of a toilet plunger trumpet. And this was followed by, which every good band should have, a turtle blowing on a jug. Yes, that's the nearest I could do to a turtle blowing a jug. And of course, there was a fourth rabbit drumming on the turtle's shell. As I said, there wasn't much information available for this, and now it seems I've got a lot of information. Across from the river from the band, a patch of 12 sentient carrots, with the faces of women wearing lots of makeup, sing out over and over again, telling the guests that whatever they do, they must save the rabbit, or else he will wind up in a kettle of stew. As the boat heads further down in the front of Mr Bear's shack, guests see that Mr Fox and Mr Bear have captured Mr Rabbit. This sounds like a joke going somewhere, but no, they'd captured Mr. Rabbit and have put him inside of a burlap sack. A chicken can be seen continually sticking his head out of the window, clucking and screaming for help. The boat then floats past more of Mr. Bear's crops, and soon the boat arrives at another grotto in the swamp. Every swamp must have a grotto. It seems that Mr. Rabbit had been saved by the friendly owls, who are circling overhead, carrying a large white sheet. Mr. Fox and Mr. Bear, seeing it from below, think that the sheet is a real ghost. Woo! and are terrified, cringing at the sight of the apparition. More trees and foliage interrupt the guest's view, and the boat approaches another clearing, revealing two rabbit children playing with marionettes, possibly a reference Sid and Marty Croft made to themselves. The marionettes are unflattering caricatures of Mr Fox and Mr Bear, while the rest of the bunny family are busy helping their father milk a cow in the corner. Of course, rabbits milk cows. Up ahead, the crow quartet returns, but instead of a happy, upbeat song, they are singing a dire warning of the creatures ahead that are liable to scorn you. As a dark, forbidding cave approaches, guests stumble across the secret arsenal of Mr. Fox and Mr. Bear inside of a black-lit cave, including an extensive array of cannons, cannonballs, gunpowder, and TNT. TNT, it's dynamite. Anyway, move on. We're getting very carried away with this section. 
and they intend to use this arsenal to destroy the entire Okefenoki Swamp. <gasps> oh dear. After guests learn of their dark secrets, the evil duo attempt to kill the witnesses by firing at the boat with their rifles. After barely escaping with their lives and emerging from the cave, guests see that everything has become pitch black, except for a red glow in the distance, coming from around the bend. After going around said bend, guests are confronted by a tree that has fallen over the river, forming a natural archway. On top of the tree, Mr. Fox and Mr. Bear have gotten out of the boat and are swinging Red Railroad-style lanterns, both chanting, Beware! Beware! Go back! Go back! Don't you just feel like you're on the ride now? This is amazing. The boat then heads up another incline, getting closer and closer to both of them. It then goes down a small drop, causing a splash. The entire Okafenoki swamp has now been engulfed in a thunderstorm, and everything has become very scary. A huge tree with an evil face suddenly creaks forward at the boat. Owls less friendly than before, with eerily glowing eyes glare at the boat from every which way, and rattlesnakes hang down from the tree branches. Guests would feel gusts of air and lightning flashes, while backlit bats fly overhead. Backlit bats, not easy to say. And an alligator in the water snaps its jaws at the boat. The boat then approaches the briar patch, the home of Mr. Rabbit and his family, therefore alleviating the tension. Once inside, guests then learn it's Christmas time. Oh, we seem to have skipped a bit there, but it's Christmas time. And the Rabbit family is seen preparing for their holiday feast. Mr. Rabbit, of course, is carving a giant carrot, just like a roast turkey. And the children are impatiently banging their utensils on the table. Next to the fireplace, a Christmas tree is decorated with carrots instead of ornaments. And the children sing a Christmas carol. Now outside of the Rabbit's home, the night sky is clear and everything is moonlit. Mr. Bear and Mr. Fox sit soggily in the frog pond and are covered with frogs as their eyes move in a strange way. In the next scene, Mr. Rabbit uses a stick to shake a beehive, and the angry swarm of bees chase the two panting villains into the distance. Hooray, Mr. Rabbit. Well done. On the other side of the river, various critters of the Okafenoki are celebrating this newfound peace, singing their national anthem. One of the rabbits is floating in the air by a bunch of colourful balloons, a rabbit and a turtle are playing on a seesaw, a raccoon balances small rabbits on his shoulders, and a magician, formerly a rabbit child playing with a hula hoop, and juggler entertain visitors. The quartet of crows also return for a third time, singing with everyone else, and there's also watermelon trees, growing watermelons with faces that can also be seen singing as well. Overhead, a jolly sun laughs with glee at the sight of the fun below. The last person seen is Miss Rabbit, who says, Bye now, y'all, hurry back, you hear? Miss Rabbit actually had a very deep voice. The boat then enters a final cave, which is studded with multicoloured diamonds, and then the ride ends. The actual humidity inside the building caused the fur on the robotic animals to dissolve at a very fast rate. Also repeating the same movements over and over non-stop eventually caused lots of mechanical problems with this ride, such as wearing down machinery and stripping gears. During the ride's final season of operation, one of the singing carrots actually caught fire, burning the entire scene. Watermelons from the ride's ending scene were used to fill this space. This as well as the other mechanical issues with the ride led to its 1980 closure, and its change into Monster Plantation. Monster Plantation would remain there from 1981 to 2008. And to do this, Six Flags turned to the newly formed Goddard Productions to help them come up with a new attraction for the 1981 season. Production team member Albertino later said that the idea for the attraction came to him while he was playing with his granddaughter, who was pretending to be a monster. The figures for this ride were built by AVG Productions. The ride invites guests to visit the plantation for a monster picnic hence the music you heard earlier, where humans are now allowed to visit. The monsters welcome their new human friends with music, games, and a carnival. The marshal, Billy Bob Fritter, and his canine-like partner, Fritter Bitter, 
Fritter Bitter with Bob Fritter. <laughs> More impossible to say words. They would warn the humans early on to stay out of the marsh. Don't go onto the moor. Oh, that was the monsters episode we had some time ago. American Werewolf in London, I believe. Anyway, this is Englishman in Georgia. Stay out of the marsh. Despite his warnings, the guest's boat ends up at a fork in the river that leads them right into the marsh, where dark and terrifying monsters dwell. Just when the riders feel that the end is near, Marshal Billy Bob warns off the creatures with a blast from a Confederate cannon and guides riders back to safety. Good old Billy Bob. But in September 2008, Billy Bob had fired his cannon for the last time and Six Flags announced that the ride would close for another redesign. And it became Monster Mansion, the ride that I know and love for its nonsense from 2009 to the present day. So again, in April of 2008, impressed with the newly opened Glow in the Park parade at Six Flags Mexico, Six Flags management approached designer Gary Goddard about the possibility of renewing the Monster Plantation ride. Over the fall and winter of 2008, Six Flags Monster Plantation was completely overhauled by Goddard's company. Many of the original creators participated in the renewal, including Phil Mendes, who originally designed all 107 characters, and Dick Hamilton, who had written the theme song. Monster Mansion follows the same basic plot and premise of the original Monster Plantation, but infuses the interaction with modern technologies, effects, and storytelling techniques. Although, these techniques are a bit bizarre when you do the ride. During the renewal, each of the original characters were refurbished from the inside out, including new mechanics, fur, and renewed costumes based on the originals. Eight new characters were added, and all original murals were discarded, and new murals designed by Disney Animation production designer Phil Philipson. Every light and speaker in the building was also replaced. It was renamed Monster Mansion, and the new attraction made its debut to the press on May 14th, 2009, and then two days later to the public. The attraction was actually ranked fifth in Amusement Today's Golden Ticket Awards for the best new ride of 2009. Must have been a quiet year. The ride track for Monster Mansion is 700 feet in length, with 613 feet of that in the dark, all enclosed within the show building. Monster Mansion's main show building is 25,246 square feet in size. Okay, let's get out of Monster Mansion and give it its marks out of 10. A very weird and disturbing 8. As I said, I love this kind of thing. And while not for everyone, I loved it. It's aging, it's very of a time, but it's also as if the refurb in 2009 kept it of that time. So it would be a bit quirky, it would be a bit different. I'd also be cautious about taking younger children on this too. Even though it's billed as a children's attraction, it does take a few disturbing twists and turns. Also, I would recommend not doing any drugs or alcohol before getting on this ride. You could be in for a bit of a scare. Right, let's move on to the Georgia Scorcher. The Georgia Scorcher. I spotted this as we walked into the theme park from the parking lot and instantly wanted to ride it. A standing upright coaster. This is the kind of coaster I'd always wanted to ride. And you can't miss it as you walk into the park. It kind of sits underneath Goliath. It's not huge, but it's very impressive and a great ride. But more about that as I go on. It's another one manufactured by B&M, the Georgia Scorcher opened on May the 8th, 1999 and was the last stand-up coaster installation ever built to date. It's 107 feet, 33 meters tall 
and reaches a maximum speed of 54 miles per hour. I think that's the fastest one I've talked about yet. The attraction was marketed with the tagline, Put your feet to the fire. Georgia Scorcher departs the station and climbs its 170-foot lift hill, then drops down 101 feet. The roller coaster enters its 81-foot vertical loop. It then climbs to the right, circling back towards the station before diving sharply down to the left, entering a non-inverting inclined loop that threads through the center of the vertical loop. After exiting the element, the roller coaster then climbs a small hill and is twisted over on its right side, twisting back as it enters its second inversion, a corkscrew. The coaster then climbs up to the left, crossing over the start of the lift hill before diving down and performing a ground level 270 degree helix turn, crossing itself again as it rises one final time to enter the brake run. Returning to the station via a U-turn to the left. Its layout is modest, in fitting with a long, narrow site selected for it. It's basically the first ride you'll encounter when you walk from the parking lot, as I said. And it does sit perfectly under Goliath. Yes, Goliath is that big. <laughs> but this was a great ride, very smooth. And the standing upright position, you can actually adjust your position as the seat does pivot up and down. So you can actually support your body weight with your legs if you choose to. Personally, I choose just to have my legs slightly bent. But it's a great perspective going through the loops especially and the corkscrew fantastic ride really enjoyed this a quick score out of 10 another solid 7 I rode this a few times and the ride is smooth the standing position really does give you a great perspective it's very different it's something unusual and you can see the whole ride and the surrounds as you're flying around it great ride a solid 7 I would ride this every time I believe it was actually the final ride I did as we were leaving the park on the second trip well worth the wait though it's a quick ride not particularly long but it's a very pleasant ride great stuff Okay, let's move on to Blue Hawk. Let's get through these a bit quicker, shall we? Now, Blue Hawk was designed by Vekoma and originally built for Concourse Party Pier in New Jersey, where it was known as Kamikaze. It was relocated to Six Flags Over Georgia in 1992 as Ninja, and it was the tallest roller coaster in the park at the time. In 2016, Six Flags announced that the ride would be renovated and renamed, with members of the public voting on the ride's new name. Hence, Blue Hawk was adopted. Blue Hawk uses two 28-passenger trains, each with seven cars carrying four passengers, in two rows of two seats. Riders are held in place using vest-style restraints, my favourite restraint, as Blue Hawk departs the station. It turns to the right, dropping slightly before another right turn to start up the 122-foot-tall lift hill. Upon cresting the lift, the roller coaster dives downward to the right before swooping up into the first major element, a two-inversion butterfly. Exiting the butterfly, the train enters a wide radius 270-degree curve to the left, setting up the third inversion, a reverse sidewinder. Blue Hawk then climbs a gentle slope before making a U-turn to the left and entering its final element, a double corkscrew. After completing the final inversion, the train banks to the left and passes very close to the station and under the reverse sidewinder. Then turns right prior to entering the main brake run, the train exits the brakes and makes a final U-turn to the right to set up the return to the station. Prior to renovation, the coaster was actually featured as Wally World's Velociraptor in the 2015 reboot film Vacation. Although I'm sure the original Griswold Vacation movies will definitely get an episode of their own in the future on Podcast 42. The score out of 10 for me, an average 6 really. A more than adequate thrill, which I think actually improved on each ride. The first ride seemed to be a bit rough and bouncing about. The second ride seemed to be much smoother. Maybe it was the different positions we were sat in, but it did seem to be better on the second ride. Not something I would queue excessively for, but then again, I wouldn't really queue excessively for much these days. More on queuing later though. So yep, yeah, an average 6, not a bad ride. Definitely do it if there's no queue. Let's keep going, shall we? The Daredevil Dive. Easy for you to say. Now this coaster was closed on my first trip, so I was really pleased to finally get to see this attraction open, and as it was, it turned out to be one of the final rides of the trip. 
Certainly worth the wait though. Now Daredevil Dive is a steel roller coaster at Six Flags Over Georgia, designed by the German company Gerstlauer. Daredevil Dive is based on the company's Eurofighter model and features a 95 foot, 29 meters tall vertical lift hill, a 95 degree first drop, three inversions and a top speed of 52 miles per hour. It is also the first Eurofighter type to debut a new lap bar restraint system. Oh, those lap bar restraints again. Replacing the more common, and much preferred for me as you've guessed, over the shoulder harnesses. If you've been to Universal Studios in Orlando, the Rocket Rip It Rocket ride is very similar to this, only this is a lot shorter. Daredevil Dive was first announced on September the 1st, 2010, and was placed in the park's USA section, which also includes the Goliath roller coaster. The park demolished its long-standing drive-in theatre building in the spring of 2010, and removed its indoor Eli Bridge Scrambler, Shake, Rattle and Roll, in the fall of 2010. Also, the park's former freefall attraction, a first-generation Intamin freefall tower, was located adjacent to the theatre until it was removed after the 2006 season. Daredevil Dive, though, officially opened to the public on May the 28th, 2011, with soft opening for season pass holders held the day prior. It was the second Gerstlauer Eurofighter ride to open in the southeastern United States, with the first one being Mystery Mine at Dollywood, still a place I would dearly love to visit, and it will happen one day. Six Flags also announced on March the 3rd, 2016, that Daredevil Dive would be among several rides at various parks that would receive a virtual reality upgrade. Riders aged 13 and older would have the option to wear Samsung Gear VR headsets powered by Oculus to create a 360 3D experience while riding. The illusion is themed to a fighter jet where riders fly through a futuristic city as co-pilots battling alien invaders. The feature debuted with the coaster when the park opened for the 2016 season on March the 12th, 2016. Children 12 or younger would not be able to wear the headsets and would have to ride Daredevil Dive normally, although I'm not sure how age works with that, unless it was a certification of the movie maybe. Anyway, the following season, the VR was actually removed. This is actually the second attraction to carry the Daredevil Dive name in Six Flags Over Georgia's history. In 96, the park added a Sky Coaster attraction to its Cotton State section that was named Fearless Freep's Daredevil Dive, obviously nothing to do with the DC character. That name was inspired by a Bugs Bunny cartoon, High Diving Hair, in which Yosemite Sam attempts to coerce Bugs Bunny into performing a high diving act when the show's star, Fearless Freep, is unavailable. In recent years, the park has renamed the attraction simply as Sky Coaster. Back to Daredevil Dive though, like other Eurofighter models, it features a vertical lift hill, in this case 95 feet in height. Upon reaching the top, as I said, it drops a beyond vertical angle of 95 degrees, which is quite a cool drop with the track curling slightly back under the top of the lift before levelling out. Daredevil Dive is also 2,099 feet of track. Daredevil Dive begins as the car leaves the station and turns right to reach the vertical lift hill. Upon reaching the top, the car slowly crests the hill, then drops towards the ground, passing through rings of fire, before levelling out and climbing to enter the first inversion, a dive loop. As it exits, it drops back to the ground before climbing upwards to the right to enter a banked turn on its side then diving down towards the right. It next enters the second inversion, an Immelman, returning to the ground, then turning upwards to the left and enters the ride's mid-course brakes. Exiting the brakes, the train makes a U-turn to the left, swinging around a control tower, then crossing over the first drop before making another U-turn to the right through a tunnel, and then exiting into the final inversion. A heartline roll. After a final right-hand turn, the car reaches the final brake run and returns to the station. Now for me, this is a very short ride, and a score out of 10, again a good solid six, but, this is probably the smoothest and most silent coaster I have ever been on. 
so smooth you could barely feel it was running. Imagine driving an electric car compared to a combustion engine, that's what it was like. It's basically an upgraded kiddie coaster in my view, but to round off an evening with a smooth, serene trip around a nighttime park, it really was a great way to finish the second visit. It was that and then Georgia Scorcher, two nighttime rides that are fantastic, although I think I would like to do Goliath at night and look over the whole park much better. Okay, let's keep going, what's next? The Great American Scream Machine. The GSAM. Or should we call it GASM? <laughs> you can't have too many GASMs. It's a wooden roller coaster in Six Flags, over Georgia, and it's manufactured by the Philadelphia Toboggan Coasters. That's such a good name for a company. The ride opened in 1973 as the tallest, longest, and fastest roller coaster in the world at the time. Gasm, the 105 foot tall ride, reaches a maximum speed of 57 miles per hour. At the time of opening, early riders were given a red badge of courage button for riding the coaster. On May the 21st, 2017, Great American Scream Machine received an ACE landmark designation from American coaster enthusiasts. Recognised for becoming the first wooden coaster built by Six Flags and for being well maintained. Although when you ride it, you may not think so. This coaster bumps you around and seems to leap from the track on multiple occasions. It's a long 3,800 foot and rickety and tumultuous ride, that's for sure. It's one of those rides that doesn't feel safe at all, but that's part of the attraction. It actually reminded me of the ancient Grand National roller coaster at Blackpool's Pleasure Beach in the UK, but on steroids. It really is a rickety old ride and you don't feel safe. Well, obviously I hope it's safe. Actually, talking of safety. A computerised block system is used to prevent trains from contacting each other. Gasm has five blocks, station, transfer table, lift, main brake and ready brake. Normal operation uses two trains, however it can be operated with only one. During two train operation, if the train in the station has not fully exited the loading platform, the inbound train will stop abruptly in the main brakes. A combination of proximity switches, mechanical switches, photoelectric sensors and timers are all used by the controller to track train movements, so it is safe really. Each train consists of four cars with three rows per car, two riders per row, holding 24 riders. Each row has a lap bar and a seat belt. Until the 2018 season, the lap bar itself was locked and unlocked by an electrical current that activates solenoids on the train, resulting in a buzzing electrical sound when you board. They could be troublesome though, sometimes requiring the operating crew to manually unlock the lap bar for a rider. For the 2018 season onwards, the former Georgia Cyclone trains were added, which allowed for a more reliable and safe lap bars to be installed on this ride. Each train consisting of six cars with two rows per car, two riders per row holding 24 riders. The trains ride on steel wheels with guide wheels and upsops attached. The track is plank wood stacked seven planks high, with steel running surfaces on the top, bottom and sides. Locations where the running guide and upstop wheels contact the track. Before computerised control existed though, operators used, it. operators used a lever to operate the brake system and dispatch trains. The operator near the end of the station controlled the main brakes at the end of the circuit, the operator at the front of the station operated the brakes at the station platform only and worked to dispatch trains to the lift. As I said, this feels like a real rickety old coaster. I remember we were on it and there was debris flying around from one of the carriages in front. I don't know if it was a piece of paper or a napkin or something, but it did feel like your life was in their hands on that ride. Great ride, I loved it. Bounced around, rickety around, a classic wooden coaster. And as a wooden coaster fan, this is a very good solid, maybe even an eight for me. I would say a seven, maybe it's a seven and a half. It's definitely one that isn't for the faint-hearted. 
or anyone who doesn't like to feel they are really on an out of control runaway roller coaster. But it's a great ride. It's long and it really takes you out into the wilderness of the park. Anyway, a good seven and a half. We'll give it seven and a half, shall we? A great coaster and I would always ride this one. There's not many here that I wouldn't ride to be fair. All the ones I've talked about so far, I would do again and again. Let's move on, shall we? How about some more Justice League? I mentioned the Battle for Metropolis earlier, and it's an interactive dark ride located at Six Flags, and it's a collaboration between Sally Dark Rides, Alterface, Oceaneering International, and Pure Imagination Studios. And it's themed on the Justice League. The title says it all. And for those of you who don't know, that's a DC Comics famous team of superheroes. Riders travel through the fictional city of Metropolis aboard enhanced motion RTVs designed by Argus and shoot digital targets generated on large 3D screens in real time, as well as physical targets in full practical sets. There are many special effects in the ride such as fog and fire hidden in the attraction's various scenes. Since the original ride opened at Six Flags over Texas on May 23, 2015, Six Flags has installed the dark ride at seven of its parks, all of which are still in operation. Riders enter the Hall of Justice where they learn that Lex Luthor has branded the Justice League as lawless vigilantes. By exploiting the weakness of various members of the League and hiring the Joker to distract the League, Luthor has captured Supergirl, The Flash, Green Lantern and Wonder Woman. Cyborg enlists riders in the Justice League reserve team and sends them out into the Metropolis aboard RTVs, autonomous vehicles that will transport riders to trouble spots throughout the city, thanks to information provided by both Superman and Batman. Each rider has an EMP blaster which will destroy inanimate objects including robotic enemies and also stun humans of those scoring points. As the RTV departs the Hall of Justice, riders pass through a cloud of blue mist which will temporarily protect them from Joker's deadly green laughing gas. Outside Star Labs, Superman battles the Joker but he is incapacitated by Lex Luthor and captured. The Joker attempts to gas the RTV but the riders escape into Metropolis before reaching LexCorp where Cyborg is attempting to hack the building's security systems. Batman arrives to provide cover, allowing the riders to enter LexCorp, where they are ambushed by Luthor, of course. The RTV makes its way to the giant lab where the League members are held. As the riders work to destroy Luthor's robot sentries, Cyborg and Batman free the League. Escaping back into the city, the Justice League and the reserve team battle Lex Luthor, the Joker, LexBots and their henchmen, following the pair into the city's subway system before ultimately capturing them. In appreciation for saving the city, the riders are made honorary Justice League members and are shown their scores, including the top scorer for that ride vehicle. I think I was the top scorer, I'm sure I was. Even if I wasn't, let's just pretend I was. The ride does feature multiple special effects, including complex animatronics. Throughout the ride, the trains shake, fire bursts about four feet away from the riders, and a shelving unit containing barrels appears to fall on riders. It's not a bad ride. As a score out of 10, I'd give it a respectable 5. It's a great place to fit in between some of the more intense coasters and unwind for a few moments. I'd definitely rate it above the similar Men in Black at Universal Orlando, but I'd still happily revisit both should the queue be minimal. Talking of DC characters, I was hoping to round the visit off in a great way, but sadly, the Riddler Mindbender coaster has remained closed for some time at the park. I was really hoping to ride that one, but alas, onto my final offering. I was trying to do this in the order I went round them, this wasn't the final one I went on, but as a final offering in this list, what a ride this proved to be. Cue the 50s beach music please. Twisted Cyclone, 
formerly known as Georgia Cyclone. It's a steel roller coaster manufactured by Rocky Mountain Construction, RMC. The ride opened to the public on May the 25th, 2018. It features RMC's patented iBox track technology and utilises a significant portion of the Georgia Cyclone's former support structure. It's a hybrid that was originally constructed by the DIN Corporation and Georgia Cyclone first opened on March the 3rd, 1990. Georgia Cyclone opened as a mirror image of the Coney Island Cyclone. It stood 10 feet higher than the Coney Island Cyclone at 95 feet, had a track length of 2,970 feet and reached a respectable top speed of 50 miles per hour. For the 2012 season, approximately 30% of the coaster's track was replaced with topper track by Rocky Mountain Construction. This was intended to provide an improved ride experience. But on July the 17th, 2017, park officials announced that the attraction would close permanently two weeks later on the July the 30th. And a month later, on August the 31st, 2017, Six Flags Over Georgia announced plans to convert Georgia Cyclone into a steel hybrid design called Twisted Cyclone. The drop height was raised to 100 feet, the angle was steepened to 75 degrees, and a total of 10 airtime hills and three inversions were added along the ride's course. The train's theme was modified to represent a 1960s era sports convertible, and the maximum speed remained unchanged at 50 miles per hour. The track was shortened though to approximately 2,400 feet, and the Twisted Cyclone held its grand opening on May the 25th, 2018. So a quick run through the Twisted Cyclone ride. Upon leaving the station, the train proceeds through several twisted bunny hills, they're great, while making a left-handed turnaround into the 100-foot lift hill. At the top, riders are released into a drop at 75 degrees and rise into the first of three inversions, a so-called step-up underflip. That's a great word, step-up underflip. The train sweeps to the right through the turnaround and exits through a barrel roll down-drop inversion. These roller coaster terms are amazing which is identical to the first inversion, minus the train's direction. The train passes through a wall stall facing away from the lift hill and a hasty turnaround wave turn. Another airtime hill leads to the layout's third and final inversion, a zero-g roll, and a pair of low-ground airtime hills before entering the final left-hand turnaround. Another small airtime hill follows, and riders dip up in the final brake run, which leads back to the station. From dispatch to brake run, one ride on Twisted Cyclone lasts 1 minute and 20 seconds and pretty much zero time is wasted at all. It's such a good ride. It's fast, it's furious, it's hectic, it's great. Twisted Cyclone maintains its hurricane strength momentum from start to finish. The turn into the brake run is just as powerful as the twist out of the reverse cobra roll. As this ride is short, it really packs a punch. The first drop is awesome and flings you out of your seat, again due to the minimalistic lap restraint. But this ride really does benefit from it. The lap restraint was perfect for this ride. The reverse cobra roll is fun and whippy and gives good hang time at the same time. The wave turn is my favourite part of the ride and gives a good sideways lifter airtime. Floor ejector airtime it is. The step up to the overbank is extremely strong and the overbank is whippy and fun. The zero G roll gives good whip in front of a good hang time in the back. The next two hills are strong pops of ejector and are very much fun. You then go into an overbank that feels like the first one and then you twist into the brake run. There's just so much going on. While Twisted Cyclone is certainly one of the star attractions at Six Flags Over Georgia, I can't forget about the sign I read on the coaster's queue building. Hurricane evacuation plan. One, grab a beer. Two, run like hell. That made me laugh anyway. But the theming and music throughout is very much that of a 60s beach movie. I think I said 50s earlier, but it's a 60s beach movie. Well, that's my opinion anyway. The music playing all the time. It's fantastic. It's a great ride. Score out of 10, an exhilarating 8. Short and sweet with hurricane strength. Okay.
That's about it for the rides I actually went on, but I'll not mention the one I actually got into the queue for, only to see it operate and exit stage left. That was Pandemonium. No, the ride was called Pandemonium. There's no way I'm riding that any day soon. I should really briefly point out some of the other minor rides that I didn't partake in too. These, as I said, we were there for the thrill rides and trying to cram as much as we could into an evening's riding, although we did it over two days. Other rides include the Acme Trucking Company, a kiddie trucks ride in Bugs Bunny Boomtown, there's Daffy Duck Bucket Blasters, a water battle attraction, also in Bugs Bunny Boomtown, Bugs Bunny Boomtown, always easy to say, not. That opened in 2016, and it's a spinning boat ride manufactured by Mac Rides. There's the Catwoman Whip, a supersized wheel spinning horizontally as a giant arm lifts and tilts the wheel to a vertical position, with heights reaching 67 foot in the air. There was the Poison Ivy Toxic Spin, an amusement ride in which suspended riders spinning in cars experience centrifugal forces, while spinning along two separate axes. The Harley Quinn Wild Whirl, basically a tilt-a-whirl flat ride similar to the waltzes in Europe. The Joker Chaos Coaster, a simple super loop ride, a single vertically orientated loop of track and a single train. The train travels backwards and forwards around the loop, inverting riders multiple times. I always find those quite boring if I was honest. Then the Sky Screamer. Another ride you will not get me on in a month of Sundays. The park's tallest ride standing at 252 feet, riders aboard Sky Screamer are carried aloft in two-person swing-like chairs attached to a rotating gondola mounted on a central tower. When the gondola reaches the top of the tower, riders are swung out in a wide circle at speeds approaching 43 miles per hour with expansive views of the adjacent countryside. Sounds perfect, not for me. The ride is marketed to both thrill ride enthusiasts and patrons seeking a more family friendly experience, apparently. Uh, no thank you, I'll pass on that. There's also the DC Supervillain Swing, which is pretty much a low level skyscreamer. You get the idea, a spinning swing seated carousel, only not 74 metres in the air. Okay, I'm glad I just did the serious thrills and less harrowing rides. <laughs> Give me a good roller coaster any day. I mentioned queuing earlier, so I think it's well worth spending some time on the Flash Pass that is available at Six Flags over Georgia. Now I was lucky enough to get a Flash Pass while I was there, as I hate to stand in line. It really was amazing and facilitated breezing around the park and almost riding at will. What is Flash Pass you say? Well Flash Passes are available for an additional fee and you can reduce wait time by up to 90%. Once you find a ride you like, check in with the Flash Pass and you'll be given an alert when it's your turn to ride. You'll be able to bypass the lines and enter through the Flash Pass line. The Flash Pass is good for all the park favourite rides that I've just talked about. You get a wristwatch device, one per party, and dial in the ride you want to ride next. The watch then buzzes and tells you when it's your turn for the ride. Simple. If you are local, the season passes are amazing value too. The Flash Pass does bump it up considerably though, the price, but if you are a regular, then I can see the advantages particularly being able to enter the park early evening as we did and still manage to hit everything and even some main attractions a few times. There are also a lot of minor attractions as I've mentioned earlier and a whole water park that I missed out, but that wasn't the mission this time. In summary, all in all, a great experience at Six Flags over Georgia. Highly recommended and I'd go back in a heartbeat. I'm not even going to compare this to the likes of Disney World, that's a different experience. Even Universal, which I frequent quite often, it's a different experience. Six Flags over Georgia, a good 8 out of 10 park, some real solid rides, some rides of the like I've never ridden before. I had a great time. I'd go back again tomorrow, if I could. Okay, time to slow the pace down a little and talk briefly, we've heard that one before I'm sure, about another attraction I visited while I was in Georgia. This time, we're going to Midtown Atlanta, somewhere I mentioned very briefly in the previous podcast. Let's talk about this. 
Anyway, that's the Crystal Biscuit family. Country fried steak and chick. Oh, and here's my wife, country fried chick, sitting on the porch swinging. How long is your cousin in town again? Don't worry. He's only here for a limited time. (gasps) We've got to get out of this stench. No, Stench? Of what speakest thou? Smell. I smell nothing. Oh, you're joking. But I live by my sense of smell. (sighs) Smell bad. A is for alligator. B is for bayou. C is for cypress trees. D is the dew. E is for everything like F, ferns, or G, grass. That's H, home to you. I is for insects. J for juniper. K, kelp. L, log. M is the moon. N is noontime. O is for otter. P for possum. He'll be sleeping soon. Q is quicksand. That's very tricky. R rushes. S snakes. T tar that gets you sticky. U is the universe. That's V vast and W wide. X marks the spot where I love to hide. Y is the yellow bird that sings so sweet. Which brings me back to Z and now my alphabet's complete in the swamp. Take this oatmeal cookie. It's important. It means whole lot to me. Oh, and, and a chocolate chip cookie. Chocolate chip cookie important to me, too. Yeah, I mean, whole lot to me. Important. Down at Fraggle Rock. So you may recognize some of that from the Dark Crystal, the Muppets, the Fraggles. Ah, Fraggle Rock. A little bit of Fraggle Rock trivia, actually. I only found this the other day. In my 50 years of existence, I'd never realised this. If you go to the Chris Kit YouTube channel, C-H-R-I-S-C-U-I-T, Biscuit with a Chris on the front, you will see what I mean when I tell you that Fraggle Rock had various introductions for the theme music. For example, in the UK, I I grew up with a, a lighthouse that Fraggle Rock was underneath, and a lighthouse keeper. The American version intro was a workshop with a completely different guy. The French version was different again, and the German version even more different. How did I never know this? It was strange because when I was researching my Muppet episode, the last episode, Good Grief, the Comedian's a Bear, in case you're interested in it and haven't listened to it yet, that I realised there was something off when I was looking at Fraggle Rock clips and I didn't recognise the opening. So I took a look, and there we go. Anyway, I digress. So while I was in Atlanta, I visited an amazing place the Centre for Puppetry Arts. 
So get ready to rethink everything you know about puppets and puppeteers, the live shows, workshops, exhibitions, and events that will have you feeling like a kid again at the Centre for Puppetry Arts. Limited free parking is available, said the website. But this place did not disappoint. For a few hours, I was indeed seven years old again. The Centre for Puppetry Arts, located in Atlanta, or is it Atlanta? I'm getting there, the same as banana and banana in a cabana, or is it a banana cabana? Oh, you Disney people will know what I'm talking about. I don't. Anyway, it's the United States' largest organisation dedicated to the art form of puppetry. The centre focuses on three areas, performance, education and museum. It is one of the few puppet museums in the world. The centre is located in Midtown, a very nice artsy district of Atlanta, and it was founded in 1978 by Vincent Anthony. The Centre for Puppetry Arts opened to the public on September the 23rd, 1978, when none other than Kermit the Frog and his creator, Jim Henson, cut the ceremonial ribbon. A young puppeteer from Florida, Vincent Anthony, began touring with Niccolo Marionettes under the tutelage of Nicholas Coppola and was based out of New York City. By 1966, he was ready for a smaller community where he could be an active partner and make a difference. Together with Mitchell Edmonds, with whom he'd worked at Niccolo, they decided to move to Atlanta to create their own company, the Vagabond Marionettes. That just rolls off the tongue, that's a great name. Vince's vision was to create a centre that would promote puppetry and become a vital part of the community. And that's, to be honest, what they succeeded in doing. They created a successful touring company that travelled around the southeast and presented several seasons at Atlanta's Woodruff Arts Centre. In 1978, Anthony founded a permanent home in the former Spring Street Elementary School, and the centre was born. That first season, the centre mounted an exhibition of puppets, presented shows for adults and families, and hosted community-based workshops and activities that continue to this day. Since its inception, the centre has worked to serve the diverse populations of Atlanta, the state of Georgia, and the country at large. The centre reaches the community through its focus on core programming, performance, museum, and education. And this was very prevalent when we visited. I could see it everywhere. On July the 25th, 2007 though, the centre announced the opening of a new Jim Henson wing, which houses anywhere from 500 to 700 retired Muppets, including those from Fraggle Rock, The Muppet Show and Sesame Street. The new wing also includes films, sketches and other materials from the Jim Henson Company archives. The wing which is part of the centre's new building opened on November the 14th, 2015. It took some time to put together, but it was well worth it. And I will talk about that a bit more soon. But there are performances at the centre. Each year, the Centre for Puppetry Arts presents the Family Series, a collection of adapted classic stories and new works performed in a variety of puppetry styles by the centre company. When I was there, it was Mother Goose was on. Past shows have included an adaptation of The Shoemaker and the Elves set in 1940s Manhattan, John Ludwig's Dinosaurs, and the Ghastly Dreadful's Compendium of Graveyard Tales, and other curiosities a Halloween-themed variety show. Family performances are made up of shows that the centre's company creates, performs, as well as other artists from around the world. National travelling puppetry troops set up shop at the centre during Summerfest and perform a variety of works for families. Included with many family performances is a Create a Puppet workshop that relates to the show. As I said, the show at the time of my visit was Mother Goose. The Centre for Puppetry Arts also has the New Direction series, which features teen and adult-oriented shows by Atlanta artists and visiting companies. The New Direction series are known for being more thought-provoking and visually appealing. Puppetry isn't just for children, it's for everybody. And each show does have a recommended age for those attending. 
So that was performance. How about education? In addition to presenting productions, the centre offers a variety of classes and workshops for adults and children alike. As I mentioned, the Create a Puppet workshops, offered in conjunction with the Family Series performances, this encourages children to build a puppet of their own that is related to the show. Adults can then learn about different aspects of puppetry in the Adult Education Series. And the distance learning program reaches students across the US with a virtual field trip experience. Many programs and workshops are always available online by recorded playback and live webinar. They've really embraced modern technology in the digital era and it seems to be working. The museum, the centre is thriving. And finally the third principle, the museum. The centre's museum and special exhibits is exactly why I was there. They present puppets from various time periods and countries around the world. Exhibitions of puppets are considered essential to enhance the understanding and appreciation of performances. The Worlds of Puppetry Museum includes the world's largest collection of Jim Henson artefacts. And you know I'm a big fan of Jim Henson from the last episode. And it represents one of the largest collections of global puppetry artefacts in the hemisphere. Puppets in the collection include Wayland Flowers' Madam, The Little Players, Skeksis from the film The Dark Crystal, there was even a new exhibit completely devoted to the new Dark Crystal series, Age of Resistance. There were two of the mask prototypes created by Julie Taymor for the Broadway smash hit The Lion King, Hakuna Matata. Tom Servo was there and Crow T. Robot from the Mystery Science Theatre 3000. I love that show. Look it up if you don't know about it. I'm sure I've mentioned it on one of my previous podcasts. But yes, Mystery Science Theatre 3000. Check it out. There was also Jim Henson's Muppets, Rolf the Dog, The Swedish Chef, Pigs in Space, and Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, Kermit, various Sesame Street original puppets including Bert and Ernie, Big Bird, the full-size Big Bird, The Cookie Monster, one of my personal favourites. Actually, my top three Sesame Street characters, I would say are The Count, Cookie Monster, Cookie, and of course, Oscar the Grouch, closely followed by probably Grover. I do like a bit of Grover. Anyway, many of these were there. Oscar the Grouch was there. There were many others. There was also a section where they recreated Jim Henson's original office, the studios that he worked in, and also there was a Muppet workshop. So all the materials, the felts that the creations were made from were all there and surrounded by artifacts and real-size Muppets. Big Bird was huge. There were many Henson artifacts from Fraggle Rock, the Crystal Fast Food ads, Emmet Otter, Labyrinth, so much more. I could have spent an entire day just picking this place apart and taking it all in. It was a great way to spend a few hours. As I mentioned, the recreation of Jim Henson's office itself had so much on display and each item had its own story. Henson's office and the recreation of the television studio where it all began are just a few of the interactive elements of the museum. Really worth a trip. I can't remember how much it was to get in, but whatever it was, it wasn't a lot and it was well worth it. Amazing. The centre has won many awards. The Ford Foundation selected the centre as one of the 28 national organisations to be recognised for success in management and innovative programmes. The Kreska Foundation awarded the centre three different grants to support its capital campaigns. The centre was also the only theatre group chosen by the 1996 Olympics to participate in all four years of its arts festival programme, garnering recognition from Newsweek as one of the most exciting companies in American theatre. In 2008, the Education Department of the Centre received the Microsoft Education Award as a laureate of the 2008 Tech Museum Awards. The Centre has also been awarded the Unima Citation of Excellence, puppetry's highest award, 13 distinct times. But I think the best way to end this section is to quote the great Jim Henson yet again. I read this as I exited the museum 
underneath a beautifully coloured stained glass window depicting Kermit and his home swamp. It's a beautiful stained glass window. I would love a version of that. It simply read, Please watch out for each other. Love and forgive everybody. It's a good life. Enjoy it. Jim. Well, I think puppets have a kind of appeal to kids, to adults. They've been around forever. You know, as long as we've had theater, we've had one kind or another of puppetry. But uh, I don't know, I, I think with the Muppets, there's, there's sort of an innocence to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that's something that appeals to the child and everybody, you know? Because yeah. I think everybody, there's, there's a child in all of us still. The late great James Maury Henson. September the 24th, 1936 to May the 16th, 1990. Sadly missed by all us puppet fans. Okay, let's pick things up a bit now, shall we? And now for a long-awaited and promised section on a random USA town. Any followers of the podcast might remember, some months ago, I picked out a town at random, and I said I would talk about it. Its population, its lifestyle, what it's all about, it's history maybe. So we're going to start with Burn, Albany County, in the state of New York. suitably dramatic fanfare for this new section. I don't think the section's going to be quite as dramatic as the intro, but let's see how we go. So Burn, Albany in New York. It's a town. Population was 2,794 at the 2010 census, and the town is at the west border of Albany County. The town of Burn, B-E-R-N-E, was originally spelled Burn until the Burn Post Office was established in 1825. It was created in 1795 from part of the town of, and I'll try and pronounce this right, Rensselaerville. Hmm, maybe a Dutch connection. In 1822, the northern half of Bern was spun off to form the new town of Knox. Oh, the drama of it already. The earliest settlers were Palatine German refugees, and settlement began long before 1750. At the time it was called Beaver Dam. Ooh, I can't beat a beaver, I'll get my bookies sponsorship one day. The settlers were actually squatters, since in the 18th and most of the 19th centuries, Bern was part of the Rensselaerwijk estate. Again, sounds Dutch, because the head of the Van Rensselaer family was the patron who owned all the land on which the tenants in the Hudson Valley lived and used feudal leases to maintain control of the region. Before the Revolutionary War, the patrons acted like feudal lords with the right to make laws. The massacre of the Dietz family in 1781 was the only Iroquois incursion in Beaver Dam during the Revolution. During the war, inhabitants fought on both sides of the conflict. Loyalists who supported the British left and went to Canada. Those who stayed and fought the British expected that if they won, 
they would either be released from their tenancy, or at least be allowed to purchase the land at fair market value. Instead, the new government of New York decided to honour the lease contracts of the patrons, who contributed heavily to the politicians. The first meeting of the town of Rensleville, which then included what are now known as the Four Hill Towns, was held in 1790, at the home of Johannes Fischer, on Stranahan Lane. He was perhaps the richest man in the town, since he owned eight slaves in 1800. When the town of Bern was created in 1795, the first meeting was also held in the home of Johannes Fischer, which is now known as the Thomas Wood House. The first mass meeting of tenant farmers leading to the anti-rent war was held in Bern on July the 4th, 1839. In January 1845, 150 delegates from 11 counties assembled in St Paul's Lutheran Church to call for political action to redress their grievances. Well, that's a little bit of history, I guess. How about some tenuous links to me? In keeping with the randomness of this section, I'm also going to see if there are any random towns that actually link to me in any way. Well, here's the first of many tenuous links that are sure to follow. Bern is also very close to the city of Schenectady. That just rolls off the tongue. I have a tenuous link with this city, as I did some work with GE, General Electric, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. General Electric also moved GE Power's headquarters from Schenectady to Atlanta in 2001, but back to Schenectady in 2012, so we're continuing the Atlanta link. It's also only an hour or so away from Saratoga Springs, a hub for thoroughbred horse racing. It's home to the Saratoga Racecourse and the National Museum of Racing. Another tenuous link for me, because I've stayed a few times at the Saratoga Springs Resort in Walt Disney World, Florida. Albany is also one of the oldest surviving settlements of the original British 13 colonies, and is the longest continuously chartered city in the United States. So, there's a British link as well. That's pretty much the best I can do for links to burn if I was honest, but at least I got three of them out there. How about the geography? According to the United States Census Bureau, the town has a total of 64.8 square miles, of which 64.1 square miles of it is land, and 0.6 square miles of it is... water, not whiskey. Referring to the census again, as I said there were 2,794 people in 2010. Interesting that in 1810, there were 5,134 people living in Bern. In 2010, there were 1,099 households and 805 families residing in the town. The population density was 43.6 people per square mile. To give you some idea how that translates, Bern has 43.6 people per square mile, Tokyo has 16,121.8 residents per square mile. Oh, a tenuous link. I lived in Tokyo. I wasn't the point eight though. I think I was a whole person. Anyway, back to Bern. Of the 1,099 households, there were 33.9% had children under the age of 18 living with them. <gasps> how controversial. 59% were married couples living together. Oh my goodness, married couples living together. 8.6% had a female householder with no husband present. <gasps> a harlot. And 26.7% were non-families. What is a non-family? I guess that's somebody without children. Who knows? 21.9% of all households were made up of individuals. Aha. Well, hang on. An individual was 20.9% and non-families 26. I'm confused already. And 7.4% had someone living alone who was 65 years of age or older. Very controversial figures, these. The average household size was 2.59. And the average family size was a perfect round three. I do love these facts and figures. If you're with me this far, you'll understand this, and I'm sure you'll appreciate it anyway. The median age at the time of the census was 40 years, too. But for every 100 females, there were 97.9 males. And for every 100 females age 18 and over, 
there were 99.0 mils, pretty much something for everybody. The median income for the household in the town was $47,174, and the median income for a family was $55,685, which kind of suggests to me that there was the head of the household was the only person working, whether it was male or female. But males had a median income of $37,324 versus $29,125 for females. I've never quite grasped the difference, but there you go, it exists still. The per capita income of the town was $22,095, about 3.7% of families and 5.4% of the population were below the poverty line, including 6.3% of those under 18 and 2.9% of those aged 65 or over. Enough facts and figures, there'll be more, don't worry. A bit of the natural history. There's the Partridge Run Wildlife Management Area on West Mountain, consisting of 4,594 acres of former abandoned upland farms. It has been improved with hiking trails, parking lots, and is available for bird watching, cross country skiing, snowshoeing, hunting. Oh, hang on, snow. Snow cold. Don't do cold weather. I don't mind a bit of snow, actually. But there's hunting, fishing, and trapping. Partridge Run and Coal Hill State Forest are units in the Helderbergs Management Area of the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Coal Hill State Forest is accessed from country routes two and three, and has also been improved with hiking trails, parking lots, and again, bird watching, cross country skiing, snowshoeing, hunting, fishing, and trapping. There's the Thatcher State Park, is on the Eastern Town Line, partly in Bern, but mainly in New Scotland, also in the state of New York, and that has campgrounds. There's the Long Path, which runs from George Washington Bridge in Fort Lee, New Jersey, to Altamont, Albany County. It crosses the town of Bern, going from Cotton Hill and Dutch Settlement State Forests in Schoharie County. Ah, Dutch Settlement, I was right. It also runs west across the Partridge Run Wildlife Management Area through Coal Hill State Forest, where it has a 270-degree view of both the Catskills and the Andadirondacks. No idea if I said that right, but that's from Roma's High Point, along the Helderberg Escarpment and continues north to Thatcher State Park, the Indian Ladder, and finally, its current end, at New York 146. There's Henry Hill, the highest point in Albany County, and that's also in Bern, south of Partridge Run State Forest. There's the Kenrose Sanctuary, in 280 acres, with one and a half miles of trail through woodland, as farmland reverts to forest. The Nature Conservancy owns and manages the Kenrose Sanctuary which was given to them by the McAlpine family. Notable people from Bern, John Warren Butterfield, November the 18th, 1801 to November the 14th, 1869. He was born in Bern and went on to found the Butterfield Overland Mail, the stage that was the early operation of American Express and Wells Fargo. There was Justice Joseph Philo Bradley, March 14th, 1813 to January the 22nd, 1892. Born on a farm at the top of Coal Hill, served as an associate justice of the Supreme Court from 1870 to 1892. Bradley is best remembered as being the 15th and final member of the Electoral Commission that decided the disputed 1876 presidential election between Republican Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrat Samuel J. Tilden. I'm guessing you know which one won, because there's only one of them that I know was a president. Other famous people, Captain Adam Bogardus, September the 17th, 1834, March the 23rd, 1913, born on a farm on Ravine Road on West Mountain became the world champion and United States champion trap shootist. He is credited with popularizing trap shooting. He invented the first practical glass ball trap in 1877. He and his sons were renowned crack shots and toured with the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. He's actually in the National Trap Shooting Hall of Fame. Should you ever visit, look him up. Other famous people from Bern, Albert Gallup, 
January the 30th, 1796 to November the 5th, 1851, was a US representative from New York from 1837 to 1839. Who else have we got? There's M. E. Granander, 21st of November 1918 to the 28th of May 1998, born in Rui, Wisconsin, was a professor of English and philanthropist for whom the M. E. Granander Department of Special Collections and Archives of the University Libraries of the University at Albany, the State University of New York, and it's named after him. That was a mouthful. Oh, it's her. Sorry, it's not a him, it's a her. She and her second husband, James Corbett, a professor of physics at SUNY, prospered through the stock market. She donated $1 million to SUNY, the State University of New York, in his memory after his death in 1994. Granda died in Eastburn, New York, at 79 years of age. Who else was famous? There was Lawrence Van Doysen, president of the Anti-Rent Association of Albany County, New York. And last but not least, there was Edelmorn Sherman, born January the 30th, 1820, died January the 26th, 1875. He was a burn farmer and served in the Wisconsin State Assembly from 1869 to 1871. Oh, I almost forgot, there was also Hiram Walden, August the 21st, 1800 to July the 21st, 1880. I couldn't find many modern famous people from Bern, unfortunately. He was born in Powlett, Vermont, but lived in Bern from 1818 to 1821 and manufactured axes. Of course he did. Then he moved his axe factory to the town of Wright to what has become known as Waldensville. He was also from 1849 to 1851 a United States representative from New York's 21st district. Wow, all these amazingly famous people. Who'd have thought it? What else is in Bern? The largest hamlet in the town is located at the intersection of New York State Route 443 and New York State Route 156. Before the post office was located here in 1825, as I said it was called Bern, or sometimes called Burnville. In the 19th and first half of the 20th century, it had a number of stores, up to three hotels, several blacksmith shops, and a funeral home, cabinet makers, harness makers, and all of those other useful places you see in Red or Dead Redemption. I've played too many video games, but that's what it sounds like. But now it's almost entirely residential. The town hall is located there in a former hotel. Upstairs is the Burn Museum with 10 rooms of history, operated by the Burn Historical Society. East Burn, a hamlet east of Burn Village on New York State Route 443. It has a Stewart's and a hardware store. In 2019, Dollar General opened a store in East Burn. Dollar Generals are everywhere. There's also Reedsville, a hamlet in the southeast part of the town. There's South Burn, a hamlet predictably near the south town line. There's a community called Thompson's Lake in the northeast part of town. South of Thompson's Lake, in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was a summer resort. Now the big hotels are gone, and most of the cottages around the lake are lived in all year round. There's Warner's Lake, a lake in the surrounding community in the north-central part of town, just west of Eastburn. In the late 19th and early 20th century, it was also a summer resort. Now the public beaches are closed, and the boarding houses are private residences. Many of the cottages around the lake are lived in all year round. There is one restaurant on the northeast side of the lake. And last but not least, there's West Burn, a hamlet near the West Town Line and west of Burn Hamlet, New York State Route, oh sorry, Route 443. The community was once called Mechanicsville and Peoria. Actually, there's another tenuous link to me. I once appeared in the musical The Pajama Game, and I was playing a travelling salesman, and I said I sold them for a loop in Peoria. Amazing, one last tenuous link. But in the 19th and the first half of the 20th century, West Burn had a number of stores and a couple of blacksmith shops. Now, it's strictly residential. Of course it is. How about the politics of Bern? Now, this is a region very much on the fence. The presidential results, for example, in 2008, Obama 50%, McCain 47. 2012, Obama 52%, Romney 45. 
went up a bit. 2016, Clinton 40%, Trump 52%, but in the recent election, Biden 48%, Trump 49%. So as I say, very small margins, apart from the Hillary years, a town very much on the fence, I'm sure. Let's check the latest news from Byrne. Oh dear, a sad note to start with. Investigators in Albany County are trying to piece together information into what caused a home on Hilltop Lane in East Byrne to explode. Oh dear. Albany County Sheriff Craig Apple, great name, says items from the house are being sent to the lab and the explosion had happened on a Friday night, killing two people. Oh, that's quite sad actually. On a happier note and showing good community spirit, a Stewart's employee, the shop I mentioned earlier, stepped up to help feed the first responders. Tammy Petruska, a member of the ladies' auxiliary, says part of her job is to keep firefighters fed on the scene. But in the early morning hours in Bern on Friday, she said not much was open, and those who were open couldn't fill a big order. However, she did remember the foyer Bush Stewart's is open 24 hours. When Tammy called the Stewart's, the guy there said he was the only person there, but he would do the best he could to help. Real community spirit. Tammy called the guy, Hunter his name was, a hero. But he said, I was just doing my job, saying, I got a call from the ladies who posted the Facebook post saying they needed a bunch of sandwiches as quick as possible, and I'd already started making it for the morning, so I dropped a couple of things I had to do and made as many as I could before they got here. I was just paying it forward to the first responders. Those are the real heroes. Hunter said it made him feel great to be able to help the first responders. Actually, Stuart's, I've since found out, is a convenience chain serving its own ice cream and soda, plus snacks some with gas station services. Real community spirit though, I like that. In other news, the chef and caterer Brad Stevens, who runs the B-Rad's brand with a quick serve spot in Albany at the restaurant and catering operations at the private Shaker Ridge Country Club in Latham, is developing sibling businesses at 2320 Helderberg Trail in Bern. The site was home for all of two months last summer to a medieval themed venture called the Fox and Kill Experience Steak and Seafood. Stevens' new businesses are the Babbling Brook Watering Hole and Eatery, described as a family-style restaurant with sandwiches, they love their sandwiches in Bern, salad, steak and seafood, and Silky's Ice Creamery. Ooh, Silky's Ice Creamery, well hello. Where bubble waffles and bubble tacos are the vessels of choice for ice cream creations. Oh yeah, giggity. The Fox and Kill experience actually occupied what was for a long time the Fox and Kill Tavern, a watering hole that took its name from the eponymous nearby creek. The tavern was open from the 1920s until 2006, reopened briefly in 2008, and was purchased for a makeover and revival in 2018, according to the Altamont Enterprise. This also led me to look at some other Burn businesses. I've done a lot of research on Burn, believe it or not, I'll have to go there one day. In particularly, farming, which seems to be quite prevalent in the area. There's Alpaca Shack Bob Rowe and family in Burn, high quality eco-friendly alpaca clothing, visit the farm, pet the alpacas. There's the Beaver Dam Farms, breeding stock, registered polled Herefords, feeder cattle, hay, open all year round. Hours may vary. On the 2032 Helderberg Trail. There's the Bush Farm, again for quality hay on Bush Lane, by appointment. There's Crozier's Sugar Barn, open all year round. Spring seven days a week, weekends the rest of the year. Hang on, that's not all year round, but it is I guess. Offering hay rides, maple tours, custom pig roasting, now we're talking chicken barbecues, brush hogging, and farm drainage work, and firewood. Wow, and they're on 353 Filkins Hill Road. Oh, this is amazing, so much information. Oh, alcohol. Elk Hill Winery, built by the Premiano family, the only winery in the hill towns. It's at 125 Prim Lane, off of Route 156 Burn, a couple of miles north of the hamlet of Burn, so you know your geography already. There's the Everflowing Springs Farm for grass-fed beef, open all year round, but by appointment. More alpacas. There's the Hilderberg alpacas, with alpacas for sale. 
boarding, yarn, and fibre for sale too, plus farm visits. Boarding? Does that mean you live with the alpacas? Who knows? There's McAuliffe's Mountain Farm, all natural meats and organic veggies, on 60 Mountain View Lane. There's the Morning Fog Farm, high quality food, sustainable farming methods, local naturally raised beef, pork and chicken, organic produce, organic herbs, farm products, unique gifts, on-farm store, open Friday 3 to 6 p.m., Saturday 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and always by appointment. Okay. There's the Partridge Run family and Apiary, ooh, Apiary, for honey, in case you didn't know, but they also do candles and soaps. So many farms. There's the Mountain Winds Farm, operated by Randy Grippen. Oh, Randy Grippen, that's a great name. He sells all-natural farm-raised chicken and eggs and maple syrup. For some reason, that one reminds me of Tegrity Farms in South Park and good old Randy Grippen. I wonder if he has Towerly working there too. The Mountain Winds Farm's primary product is maple syrup. Randy, the master forest owner, trained at Cornell University, started his maple syrup operation in 2005 with 50 pails and has been growing the operation slowly and sustainably ever since. Today, the farm boasts 50,000 feet of pipeline and 1,300 taps with the capacity to produce 500 gallons of syrup each spring. Despite this significant growth, Randy prides himself on maintaining his independence as a small family-owned maple farm. Mountain Winds Farm also raises laying hens for eggs, offer meat, and a seasonal crop of vegetables. The farm is 100% hormone, antibiotic, pesticide, and GMO-free. GMO. Now there's another quick tangent. What does it mean? Genetically modified organisms, I had to look it up. They are living organisms whose genetic material has been artificially manipulated in a laboratory through genetic engineering. This creates combinations of plant, animal, bacteria, and virus genes that do not occur in nature, all through traditional crossbreeding methods. Oh wow, you learn something new every day. What other farms are there? I won't bore you with much more. There's the R6 Livestock Company for cattle in here, the Shale Hill Farm for freezer beef, hay, straw, fence sticks, and firewood, Tim Lippett's grass-fed beef in Bern, and last but not least, the Windy Hill Farm for wool blankets and sheepskins. I think that's just about enough of Bern. We've covered pretty much everything, I think. How about I generate the next random town to talk about it in about four months' time, like I did with this one? Okay, and the next random town is Essex Fells in New Jersey. I've no idea where that is. Hopefully my New Jersey listeners or listener will know where that is and can advise me. But when I get round to it, I will research Essex Fells in New Jersey. Wow. Let's see where it is on the map while I'm talking. Oh, the dogs are impressed. Oh, this doesn't look too far from Newark and only a stone's throw from Manhattan. So yes, I will study Essex Fells and I will let you know all about it in due course. Watch this space. Okay, and on to the last topic of this episode. And I had to fit this one in while it was still fresh in my mind. And it also allows us to go full circle, quite literally, with this episode. I did mention a certain roller coaster earlier that I got to ride while I was in Florida. Let's talk about this one. The apex predator of all roller coasters I've ever ridden, for sure.
as the tagline for this coaster goes, I braved the hunt. Yes, I did mention I was able to ride the highly anticipated Jurassic World Velocicoaster, which recently opened at Universal Orlando Resort's Island of Adventure theme park, and while it's officially billed as the tallest and fastest coaster of all in Florida, I can confirm that it's also the scariest, most terrifying, and the most exhilarating of all of the ones I've ridden there. I got to check out the attraction during my recent visit, and walked away absolutely shaken to my core and ready to ride it again. This coaster is top end. It's a 10 out of 10 coaster. I'll say that upfront from the off, it's a 10 out of 10. The Velocicoaster is one of the best attractions Universal Orlando has ever opened. Combining the resort's penchant for thrills and a highly themed twist on the Jurassic Park or World franchise, think Rip Ride Rocket meets Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure, and you've pretty much got it. Only more, so much more. It's one of the most daunting, most surprising coasters I've ever ridden, but it's also executed with a tremendous attention to detail that embraces the park's Ride the Movies moniker, on which the foundation of Universal Orlando was built. It's terrifying, it's surprising, and thrilling all at once. The concept of the Velocicoaster is essentially that you're racing Velociraptors inside their paddock in an operational Jurassic World. The immersive queue makes it feel like you're walking through a part of Jurassic World Park that was introduced in the 2015 movie. Cast members Chris Pratt, Owen Grady, Bryce Dallas Howard, Claire Deering, and B.D. Wong as Dr. Henry Wu reprise their roles in videos throughout the queue, offering words of wisdom and warning to guests. There's even an excellent cameo from Mr. DNA himself, and the ride takes place prior to the events of the first Jurassic World movie. Mr. DNA's appearance, though, was one of my favourite parts of the queue. The queue also indicated a 75 minute wait. This was early evening and had subsided somewhat from the 120 to 140 minute waits earlier in the day. As I've said previously, I'm not one for queuing really over 20 minutes, but this was an exception I was willing to make. It was even better when the actual wait time turned out to be 30 minutes, so not too bad at all. But the queue is designed to build anticipation for the ride, so when you enter the Raptor stables you come face to face with Delta and Echo, who are supposedly safe and restrained in their enclosures but are clearly itching to break free and gobble you up. The ride itself feels like a hunt, just as the coaster gets ready for takeoff. Yes, it is a takeoff. These familiar raptors flank the vehicles and take off themselves, with you blasting off hot on their trail. What results is not just an intense roller coaster, but various twists and turns where you can spot said raptors here and there as practical figures scattered throughout the area. Again, there's a stellar blend of design and thrills that makes Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure such a blast, and that's very prevalent here. As for the coaster itself, hold on to your asses, that's all I can say. Across 4,700 feet of track, you reach 70 miles per hour in just 2.4 seconds, which propels you 155 feet in the air, only to then immediately plummet you back in an 80 degree drop, during which you feel like a full-on astronaut floating in space. The weightlessness is so prevalent throughout the ride, you may seriously fear for your life on various occasions, wondering how in the world you are not flying out of your seat. Indeed, the Velocicoaster is not just impressive as a theme park ride, but also as a feat of engineering. You know you're safe, but the way in which the ride vehicle secures you while twisting and turning and flipping is very subtle. Unlike the Rip Ride Rocket, until now Universal's most intense ride, the way in which you're secured in the vehicle feels less conspicuous. A very similar restraint to that of Goliath. Remember the ones I talked about which I didn't like? But because I'd ridden Goliath, I think that stood me in good stead and was able to face up to the terrors of Velocicoaster. It would not work with a different restraint. The restraint is perfect for this ride. Also on an engineering note, another reason the Velocicoaster is so successful 
is because it's a constantly surprising ride experience. Especially for those who are fans of coasters, this one feels delightfully unique. When you think you're going to go left, you go right. When you think the vehicle's about to slow down, it speeds up. And when you think you can't possibly twist and turn at the same time, the Velocicoaster literally throws you for a loop. One of the things I really love about Universal Orlando Resort is the attention to detail in immersing guests in different worlds. For example, when you step into Diagon Alley at Wizarding World of Harry Potter, you literally feel like you've left Florida altogether. I've travelled through King's Cross Station in London many, many times, and the replica in Universal Studios is absolutely amazing. I feel like I'm in London. A smaller version, maybe, but even the lampposts that adorn the water's edge of the attraction are exact replicas of those along the banks of the River Thames. I recognised them instantly, I knew it well. And as a result of this, nothing exists but the fantastical world in front of you, tangible at last, there within your grasp. Even within the contained Wizarding World, the aforementioned Hagrid's Magical Creatures motorbike adventure, which is very hard to say, feels like a detour into the Forbidden Forest, while the thrilling escape from Gringotts transports you to the famous Wizarding Bank. Two very different places existing within the same universe. Even some of the park's older rides really embrace this notion well. The forest smells in E.T. adventure are instantly transportive. But back to the Velocicoaster, this could easily have been a basic roller coaster, with the Jurassic World name slapped onto it. The Jurassic franchise is one of the most popular of all time, and the films are showing no sign of slowing down. I love the movies. I actually recently watched the original Jurassic Park. Alright, the CGI might have dated slightly, but it still stands up very well. But the Velocicoaster goes the extra mile to immerse guests into yet another new world, and it makes all the difference. This coaster leads the ranks of all the other excellent attractions like Hagrid's, Gringotts, The Revenge of the Mummy, and is destined to become the must-ride event for decades to come. Okay, that's enough thrills, spills, puppets and hog farms for one episode. How about a quick tale, and then I'll leave you with a quote and get out of here. We must be up to the two-hour mark by now, I'm sure. Actually, I was recently home visiting family for a family reunion. The house was pretty full of guests, and obviously we had to sleep where we could. Now my elderly father and I ended up in the basement of the house in a makeshift bed together. We slept pretty well until all of a sudden, my father sat up and said, Son, I need to go quickly and make love to your mother. I said, but dad, you're 96. Don't you think that's wise or even possible? Son, I have an erection and I haven't had one since 1979. I'm going to make the most of it if it kills me. But dad, dad, dad. No buts, I'm off to find your mother. Well, you'll have to take me with you then. What, son? Well, that's my cock you're holding. Okay, I'll leave you with a couple of quotes. How about some Jurassic quotes? If the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. That was from Dr. Ian Malcolm. Another one. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Also, Dr. Ian Malcolm on the Isle of Nublar, 1993. And the last quote... Dinosaurs eat man, woman inherits the earth. Dr. Ellie Sattler, also Isla Nublar, 
He was a brilliant scientist who had a brilliant idea. Me take little piece of cookie found in zillion-year-old rock, turn it into big cookie, and open super-duper theme park. Welcome to Jurassic Cookie. Just how big is this Jurassic cookie, Grandpa? Oh, me not know. Me no see it yet. Ah! Okay, that one big cookie! Ah! Is giant prehistoric cookie chasing us? Giant prehistoric cookie? Is the giant prehistoric cookie safe from Cookie Monster? Find out in Jurassic Cookie, coming soon to a theater near you.